0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. We're continuing today with the chapter 6, which is again on soteriology and LDS thought, and again, soteriology is just a theory of salvation, and last time we went into a few aspects of that, unique to the LDS faith, and tonight we're going to go into a couple more aspects. This is a pretty big subject, so I'm going to be breaking this one up into actually three parts, which is more than we've done before, but I just thought that would give us the amount of time we need to to really tackle this issue. So. Tonight we're going to go over two sections, they are atonement, justice, and mercy, and then infinite atonement. So we're getting a little bit into atonement here, Um, and as I mentioned before, we're going to go into all the different atonement theories in detail in later chapters, and so we might mention a couple of them now, but we're not going to go into too much detail and don't feel like you're missing out on something because we have not got into that yet, but if you know what they already mean, then cool. Alright, so piggybacking on from where we left off last time, we had gone over faith unto repentance, which led us into atonement, and we just touched on basically how faith and repentance are only possible because of the atonement, and now we're going to talk about this atonement, justice, and mercy. So, in the Book of Mormon, it has kind of a, well, it's close to what's known as the ransom theory of atonement, and we'll go into that later, but basically you say the term is particularly appropriate because the book of mormon views us as belonging to the devil and in bondage to him as his servants unless we are redeemed that's in alma chapter 12 verse 11 so what christ did somehow metaphorically pays the price owed to the devil to free us from bondage and you know although it quickly leads to nonsense if the metaphor is taken too far and so like i said we'll get into that later but explain more kind of what the book of mormon view is In particular, with this, like, what kind of bondage are we in to the devil?
1: This is explained in several passages in the Book of Mormon. One of the primary passages is 2 Nephi 9. In 2 Nephi 9, following off also on 2 Nephi 2, what First Nephi explains and then Lehi explains is that we would be angels to the devil, but for what Christ has done for us. Without atonement, without what they call the redemption, we would be in bondage. And we would be in bondage because we would be unable to free ourselves to choose freely. And so what the Book of Mormon focuses on is precisely our ability to choose freely. So the atonement does something very essential for us. It frees us from bondage. And so the metaphor of being delivered from bondage becomes totally appropriate, that what is at least the start of the ransom theory is something that makes a lot of sense in terms of the Book of Mormon view of the world. We would be in bondage to the needs of our bodies. We would be in bondage to death. We would be unable to enter into God's presence because no unclean thing can enter his presence, and so we would be forever subjected to be angels to the devil. However, because of the atonement, we are made free to choose for ourselves. Now, I'm going to use a term here, prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is that grace which is given to us prior to any choice that we make. And there are several notions of prevenient grace in Mormon scripture, but they all have something in common. And that something is that we are made free to choose for ourselves. And the choice that we have is a choice between life and death. Or eternal life in relationship with God and in his presence. Or death, which leads to presence in the devil's presence. And so the Book of Mormon is, is essentially saying that before any choice we make, we're made able to make choices. And so this is a view that is very, in a sense, it's Arminian Arminius was a 16th century theologian who rejected the Calvinist notion that God had to overcome our obstinate wills with irresistible grace. His view was that sufficient grace, that's his term, that sufficient grace was given to all people for salvation, and the difference between those who are saved and damned isn't God's election, but their free choice to accept what God has offered. So before anything else, we have to be freed from the bondage that we are in and what the Atonement does, regardless of our choices, a sheer grace, it frees us to make decisions.
0: All right, great. And yeah, so with that, we can switch gears a little bit here to the other subject in the title of the section, which is justice. And so you talk about in the book how basically in the LDS view, justice is... Um, basically getting back what you put out there. And so this quote is, you say, no one can complain of injustice if God gives them what they truly desire to receive. Nothing could be fairer and more, nothing could be fairer and more just than giving everyone what they choose. So Alma explains, he says, the meaning of the word restoration is to bring back again evil for evil or carnal for carnal or devilish for devilish. Which I guess for some context, he's talking about a restoration of all things in the resurrection and and such. Anyway, he goes on. Good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. And he's talking to his son here. So he says, Therefore, my son, see that you are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. If ye do all these things, then ye shall receive your reward. Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. Ye shall have justice restored unto you again. Ye shall have righteousness, or you shall have righteous judgment restored unto you again. And ye shall have good reward rewarded unto you again. So basically, it's kind of this karma type idea. Basically, the, whatever you put out returns to you.
1: Yeah, that's his express statement. He says, for that which you do send out shall return to you again. And be restored. Therefore, the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner and justifieth him, him not at all. Remember, he's talking to his son Corianton, who had gone off the rails while he was being a missionary with Jezebel. And Corianton had this concern how can God be just in punishing people for sins? And so he's explaining to him the justice of God. And this is a very different notion of justice. It's not punitive justice or or retributive justice where you receive back as a punishment. Rather, you receive exactly what you desire because what we truly desire is shown by what we do, and our true desires are reflected in where we put our heart. And so what we send out to people is what we truly desire because that's what we're doing, and that's what we receive back again. So the notion of justice is restoration of what we have sent out to us. Now, there are a lot of different names for this. The law of the harvest, you you reap what you sow, you receive the very judgment by which you're judged. As you said, the law of karma, the common vernacular is that what goes around comes around. And so this is not something that is unique to the Book of Mormon, but the way that it is being presented in the Book of Mormon is quite unique and very beautiful in my opinion. And so what he's saying here is that this notion of justice is the justice by which God operates. So he's explaining how God is just and merciful because of the notion of restoration. And he's just simply giving back to us what we've given others. And so, you know, if if you truly want justice, that's good, but would you rather be judged mercifully or, or by strict justice? And I think almost everyone I know would say, yeah, I think I'd prefer mercy. And so when he's talking to Coriant, and he's saying, look, if you want justice, that's what you'll receive. But if you want mercy, be merciful. And it's a very beautiful discourse, but it also is kind of a revolution. It reorients the notion of justice in relation to reward. Let me go back again. I'm going to put this first in, in the Protestant matrix and then show how the matrix that is used by Protestantism is simply broken by Mormonism. In other words, the vessel that's used by Protestantism is no longer useful. In Protestantism. There's this moment of justification. For evangelicals, it's that moment when they're born again. They can tell you the exact moment when they received Jesus and were saved. This is the moment of justification. And a lot of Protestants that I've spoken with just stop there. They have a single key on their piano. I was saved. That's the end of the discussion. But almost all Protestants, if they're thoughtful, will then move on and say, well, there's something more than that. If you ask any Protestant, do you believe that you will be judged according to your works? Every single one, I believe, will say, well, yeah. And do you believe that you will receive a reward according to what you've done? Yes, I do. And so reward is according to works. So salvation is by grace. Reward and judgment are by works. In the Book of Mormon, what it is saying is not that the Book of Mormon never uses the term justification, which is the key term in Protestant theology. If Joseph Smith were truly using the concepts of Protestant theology in translating the Book of Mormon, the word justification would most certainly appear there and be explained, but it never uses that term ever. Instead, it has this notion of being redeemed from sin, and to be redeemed means to be delivered from the devil. So it is salvation. We're being saved from death, we're being saved from bondage to the devil, but it isn't simply a static notion because immediately it involves this notion that then the justice that's at issue, we don't escape the justice of God. Instead, we have restored to us what we have sent out. And this is the most just notion of justice ever invented, in my opinion. This is an incredible notion of justice. It's revolutionary, as I said. And I haven't seen this written about, but this notion of justice is a completely unique, new way of seeing justice. Though it has to be the oldest notion in the world. I mean, if you talk to people about karma and the law of the harvest, or reaping what you sow, I guess both are true. Everybody's going to say, well, of course, and I believe that, and it's taught in the Bible, it's taught in the Old Testament, it's taught in the New Testament. Frankly, it's probably one of the universal rules of just about every religion. And I've never spoken to an atheist that doesn't believe that what goes around comes around isn't true. So it just seems to be something that's innate in us. We know that what we send out comes back to us, just as Alma said. And it's inherently just. There's no way to argue with it because nobody can argue that they shouldn't receive what they've truly desired or what they truly desired isn't reflected in the way that they are, that is in our being, and our actions reflect our way of being. And so this is is not merely a revolutionary; it's insightful and inspiring notion of of God's justice.
0: All right, cool. And then also, just to clarify, I guess it's a question too. But you're not necessarily saying that all the things will be returned to you during this life, because as we can see, in like obviously bad things happen to good people. So if you do good, it doesn't necessarily mean during this lifetime. We're not saying if you do good, you only have good things happen to you. You're saying ultimately, in the end, meaning past this life, the reward or whatever is returned to you is what you put forth during this life. I would
1: want to say, in a sense, it's both and. I get, I get what you're saying, and it's correct. Obviously, life is sometimes unfair. It, it's not fair that good people get diseases that destroy their bodies, like multiple sclerosis. It's not fair that people are born with spine bifida. It's not fair that, that people get cancer. None of that is fair. And it's not a result of whether they're good or evil, it has nothing to do with that. But I think the, the thought world in which this is operating is a bit different than that. I think the thought world is one where it does return to us in this life and almost immediately. And that is, in our interpersonal relationships with people, if we treat them with kindness, we will receive kindness. If we show them love, we will receive love. Now. That may not always be true, but my experience is that if I come into my house and I'm in a sour mood and I put out anger and, and, you know, this sour mood that I'm in, that's what I get back immediately. And so there is a sense that is true in interpersonal interactions where what we send out immediately comes back to us. And, and I think every parent will say, you know, everything that we repressed, our children expressed. I mean, our children reflected our way of being in the world as well. So there is a sense in which the, the law of restoration or this law of what we send out is sent back to us and we receive again, in the law of restoration, it is true in our interpersonal relationships. Now, there may be people that no matter how kindly we treat them are going to treat us badly. But my experience is that almost every, except for maybe those that are pathological, respond in a way that reflects this particular law of, and it's a law of interpersonal relationships, I suggest.
0: All right. Well, that makes sense. Okay, and then jumping ahead a bit here in the chapter, I'm just kind of skipping around, but that should make sense. So Alma also talks about this life being like a probationary state, or he says, allowing a space of time for repentance. And that's what this life is. I don't know, you can explain the concept more, but I just had a question about your view on this it seems to imply things that we already talked about, like original sin. I'm not understanding how we can... It doesn't necessarily fit with what I'm understanding, ultimately, is at least your view on this. For ex- I'll just juxtapose them. So, for example, the way I understood your view is more like this life is more to see if, if we are cut off from God's presence or his immediate presence, will we freely choose to be in relationship with him? and divine relationships with others, whereas the view of Alma seems to be more that immediately this time here is a probation. It's a time to see whether or not we'll sin a lot or something. I don't know if that's making sense, but it's almost a saying we have sin, and we have to come here as a time to see if we're really worthy to be in God's presence, as opposed to having it be a time when we choose to be in relationship with God. Do you you see a difference there, or what, what am I missing?
1: Well, it's not whether we're worthy to be in God's presence. God's willing to accept us at any time we turn to him and are willing to be with him. But there's this fact about relationships, and it is this, and we've talked about it. Love is a free choice. It can't be coerced. It can't be a matter of being caused by some irresistible force to love another person. Love, by its very nature, is freely chosen. If we were in God's presence, His power and glory would be such, there really would be no space for making a choice against God. And so in order to move forward in our relationship, we had progressed. I'll just posit this. We had progressed to a point where without having this kind of a space from God we couldn't progress further in our relationship with him to become like him and so in order to do that paradoxically we must leave God's presence in order to choose to have a genuine relationship with him and the reason for that is that we have to have the possibility of choosing against that relationship in circumstances where that's truly a possibility for us to choose okay it has to be a real choice It's the same paradox as saying, I have to be willing to let go of the person I love and let them choose freely, or I don't really love them. I have to be willing to let go in order to let them freely choose, because if I don't hold on too hard, they're going to reject me anyway because I'm controlling. But more importantly, without that kind of space, interpersonal relationships die. We have to give that space to other people to to honor their choices. And so, what is being set up here, I think the key to Alma's point of view on this is that he has granted us a space, a space in which to choose for ourselves and receive what we choose. And in essence, repentance, remember, is just the Hebrew, and and this is clear that it's the term I believe that is underlying Alma's thinking on this is the Hebrew term shuv, which means just turn around. And he uses the phrase, turn around, (laughs) and turn to God. And so, turn from sin and turn to God is actually, you know, what Alma's talking about. And so, sin, in this sense, is choosing against being in relationship. It's doing things that get in the way of being in relationship. A concrete example, if a person is married and that person does something, say that a person commits adultery, that's going to harm the relationship big time. Let's say a person decides they're not going to tell his or her spouse that they've committed adultery. Now, we don't start out as adulterers, I'm not suggesting we start out sinful, in fact we start out innocent, but we start out having made the choice to leave God's presence precisely so that we can make the choice to turn back to Him and walk back into His presence in a genuine relationship, one this time that is freely chosen.
0: Could it be, sorry, I just thought of kind of a a metaphor along those lines, could it be more like, let's say, you're in a dating relationship and you have the opportunity to move forward and you have to kind of make the choice whether or not you're going to fully commit to this person or not, but sometimes people say they need time to think or they need space. I don't know. That's not like a universal enough to maybe apply here. But. Well, I think
1: it's a good suggestion. Oftentimes, if a person is feeling like they're being smothered and can not they can't make a choice because they're just being smothered by the other person, then the only way they can make a real choice is by saying, you got to give me some space so I can choose into this or not because you're not leaving me space to make that choice. It's an excellent metaphor.
0: So you just need to find out who you are on your own and then you can come back to that person and say, yes, I'm ready to either move forward with this or saying, no, I'm, now that I'm away from you enough, I've realized that's, that's not what I want.
1: Yeah, and this is part of opposition in all things. In order to know what love is, we have to have the capability and actually know what not love is. And so we, we leave the presence of perfect love to come into this life and we, we gain a body that gives us the capacity to hide. I mean, one thing that, you know, the capacity a body gives us is the capacity to be opaque to each other. We can lie and we we can deceive each other and we can hide from each other. And so we gain the opportunity. I mean, you know, this is the Edenic story with Adam and Eve because they're hiding. They're hiding from God when it's impossible to hide from him, right? So what they're doing is making a choice to hide instead of being in a relationship, and the question is whether they will choose to turn around from that choice. And this is the way Alma talks about it in Alma 42, which follows this discussion of justice in Alma 41. It's a masterful discussion, and I think it's interesting because the discussion in Alma 42 seems to presuppose precisely the the Hebrew use of the terms Adam and repentance and you know humankind, and and it seems to have in mind a fuller understanding of the meaning of the Edenic story in Hebrew terms, and that's the way Alma is thinking of it. At least that's the way I read it. And it seems to me that there is this very profound notion that we must be cognitively separated from God. That is, we have to be put at a cognitive distance from God where it's capable to reject Him. And in order to truly reject God, I mean, if you truly believe there's a God, Rejecting him can be very difficult because who would be stupid enough to reject God? That would really be self-defeating. So you kind of have to be capable of talking yourself into believing that there is no God. And so his presence must be and, and his existence must be ambiguous so that we can fully hide from God, so that our hearts can be eclipsed to where we really don't feel God's immediate presence anymore because we can choose against God and and this is a choice that God must leave us, it can't be any other way because love can only exist in its fullness when it's freely chosen and a genuine relationship is chosen into freely. So what is being set up here is a very profound relationship between God and human beings where God, and this is where the freedom that God gives us in Atonement comes in as well because this is the very essence of the plan of atonement or the entire plan of salvation, it is, I'm leaving you free to choose for yourself. And in order to do that, I give you the gift of freedom. Remember how often, I mean, the scriptures say probably half a dozen times that God gave humans their agency. He gave them their freedom to choose. And so there's this profound sense in which the whole purpose of life is to give us this freedom to choose. And so the space that Alma talks about in Alma 41 and 42 is a space in which God is not going to execute judgment to ban us from his presence forever, rather, and this is a very loving thing to do, he's going to put us on probation which means I'm going to give you a time in which you can make a different choice if that's what you choose to do. You've chosen to leave my presence so that you can make this choice and now the question is whether you will make the decision to be in my presence, whether you will choose me by turning around and walking back into my open arms waiting for you or whether you will continue to walk on this lonely path all alone, walking in a direction that is away from me, and you can continue to walk that path if that's the choice that you make. You can even deny my existence, and you can decide that there isn't a God, and you can be without God in the world, a phrase also used in the Book of Mormon. And so these people who choose against God, that's a choice that God is giving them, and he's honoring their choice. And he's you know, he's not judging them, he's just giving them what they truly desire. This is back to Alma 41 and the law of restoration and what we send out returns to us again. So God is leaving us free and he's totally just in his judgments in leaving us free to choose and by placing us on probation. It really is a profound and masterful discussion of the nature of prevenient grace. I use the term "prevenient grace, obviously that term's not used in the Book of Mormon itself, it's just a way that I give a name to the concept of God's giving us the choice before we even make a choice about Him, and the concepts of interpersonal freedom to choose, but most importantly, a space where we have our own space for ourselves to choose. And so the entire purpose of life is to be placed on probation so we can make this central choice. It's the same with each of us, by the way, in every one of our relationships. Whether we see it this way or not, every single day we're free to re-choose and make a different choice in every relationship that we're in. The question with our spouse is, will I choose to love again today? The choice with our children is, will I choose to show my love for them again today? The choice for our children, at first children may just love us innately. They may just respond, but the truth is there comes a point for every child where they choose whether they're going to love their parents back. I, I know people who despise their parents and truly don't love them. It's a possible choice. Things are set up so that that's a much harder choice. and It's hard, I think, not to have guilt if we choose against our parents. But the bottom line is, we're free to
0: choose. All right, next I want to kind of move into what you explain as kind of like the purpose of the Atonement, I guess. So you say, the very purpose of the Atonement is to make it possible for us to have faith to repent for he gives us the means to inspire such faith. So then you ask the question, how does the fact that Christ was sacrificed and shed his blood make it possible for us to have faith unto repentance? So one quote before we go into it. So you say, throughout the Book of Mormon, but particularly for Alma and Amulek, the basic problem from which we suffer is a hard heart or a condition of being self-enclosed and isolated, a refusal to be open to God and others. And the solution to this problem is repentance. However, before we repent, we must have a soft heart. And having a soft heart is a condition of being able to repent. And we are precluded from repenting if we have a hard heart. So we're kind of in this conundrum, I guess, if you will. But you say, however, when a heart is softened, in the scriptures it says that it is the Lord, or God, who softens our hearts through his compassion and love for us. So, what do you mean by that, and how is the atonement related to softening our hearts?
1: So, let me first start, this is, um, it's what the scripture in the epistle of 1 John states, we love him because he loved us first. There's this story that appears um, three times in the Book of Mormon as the essence of the atonement. Remember the fiery flying serpents that come into the camp of Israel. They come in, they bite the Israelites, and it kills them. And then Moses does something exceedingly strange. He takes the serpent, puts it on a stick, hoists it up, and says, if you will look on this serpent, you will be saved. And the Book of Mormon observes their hearts were too hard, and they refused to look, notwithstanding the ease of their salvation. All they had to do was look, and the way the Book of Mormon uses it When we we look, we see the love of God for us and it moves us with compassion and it moves us to open our hearts. So it's when we recognize the love of God that our hearts are softened, but we have to be willing to look first. In other words, God leaves us this freedom in relationship to him. We don't have to look. That dovetails nicely with what goes on in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, um, there are five different words in Greek for seeing something, and John uses all five, but what they all have in common is a use when the first disciples go to their fellow, they go to their families, they go to their brothers, they go to those who fish with them, and remember they're saying, well, look, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, come on, could this be the Messiah? And the simple response is, well, come look and see. by looking and seeing those are two different movements looking is looking at christ and seeing is seeing but not with human eyes it's seeing with spiritual eyes what really is in fact there now that's not the metaphor that's used in the book of mormon the metaphor that's used throughout the book of mormon and i was surprised by this to be truthful with you when i went through the book of mormon and i i've said this before but in virtually every story in the book of mormon all of the prophets uniformly chalk every single problem that their peoples have with being initiated because of a hard heart. So the origin of every problem that they have and every problem that they have specifically in relation to God is because they have a hard heart. They've decided to close themselves off to God and others. They become self-absorbed and selfish and refuse to look to see. And the solution is always a soft heart to every single problem. What I noticed was whenever the Book of Mormon talks about hardening a heart, it says that we harden our hearts. It's a free act that we do. We choose to close off. But what I noticed is that whenever it talks about a soft heart, then the initiation of the soft heart is always God acting on us to inspire us by His love, to soften our hearts. This is a uniform movement throughout the Book of Mormon. It surprised me when I saw it. I thought, oh my gosh, there's this thing in the Book of Mormon I don't think anybody else has really seen. And I'm surprised by it because at first blush, what it's suggesting is we don't freely choose to open our hearts to God. He forces our hearts to open, but that's not what it's saying. With the metaphor of the serpent hoisted on the stick and and what the Book of Mormon states repeatedly, the ease of our salvation is stunning because it's so easy. All we have to do is be willing to look. But the Israelites in that particular situation, according to the Book of Mormon, were just too hard-hearted to look, but it was easy. It's that easy for us, because the love of God is evident to anybody who cares to see. There are a lot of people, especially today, who refuse to see the love of God. They can't see God anywhere. They just don't even believe he exists, and so they can't see him anywhere. Because, in a sense, believing is seeing. You can't see with eyes of faith unless you have faith. <laughs> okay, and this, true is, this, too, is is a sort of a movement of the Book of Mormon. Because we're inspired to faith, which opens us to have a soft heart. And that's the movement in, in Alma th- 32 more, where we have already planted in our hearts a seed. And whether this heart will germinate and grow is open to us to open to it, if we choose to do so. But if we won't open to it, the seed will never germinate and it will never flourish. And so we have these metaphors throughout the Book of Mormon and they all focus on the fact That we have an instrument that God has given to us implanted in our hearts to know the truth. And so the Book of Mormon has this very profound notion of epistemology or theory of knowledge that we already have the knowledge within us. It's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She had the ability to go home all along. All she had to do was click her heels, okay? But she had it with her all along. And we have with us all along the knowledge implanted with us if we're willing to look inside soften ourselves to feel and not be too hard to be beyond feeling and if we will be willing to be open to us we will notice that there is this goodness germinating within us that begins and there's another metaphor it tastes good to us and we begin to notice it because the motions of the heart we begin to notice something growing within us now this notion of a heart of course appears again in joseph smith's revelations where the burning in the bosom, and in the bosom means just the center of us, our very heart. And heart just means the very core of us, the center of us. And so there is this more or less uniform recognition that we have implanted at the very core of our being, at the very center of us. This knowledge that we must open and be vulnerable and willing to open in vulnerability to feel. And this is the movement that the Book of Mormon is suggesting as a way of opening to god to begin the relationship or to recreate the relationship with him that we once had and there's this interesting thing the mere fact we've opened our heart once doesn't mean that we can't close our hearts again (laughs) we can and we probably do over and over again throughout our lives but there's this profound recognition in the book of mormon about the nature of the human heart and knowledge and the way that our willingness to open and be vulnerable is essential to knowing God. And I think it's a very profound way of explaining, expressing. When we are hardened to others, when we refuse to be open because we're self-absorbed, we're self-enclosed, and we just aren't open to them, we destroy our relationships. What the atonement does is inspires us with God's love and what he's done for us. But it goes beyond that because when our hearts opened, God's life, his spirit, enters into our very being. And so the minute we open to God, this is what Alma 5 is explaining, Christ's own life enters into us and we have his image inscribed in our countenance. And then we begin to live a life as a Christian because Christ has taken up abode boat in us. He's begun a co-life with us so that he is the source of our life. He's living within us as the energy by which we are energized in this life to reflect him so that our works are his works and what he would do, we do. And so the minute we open to God, we begin this process of sanctification, which is a process that is both what we do, but it's also by grace. God gives us this light to enter into us. We don't pay for it. We don't do anything to earn it. He gives us this shared life as a gift. And then he takes up a boat in us as a Christian. And we become Christians because Christ is in us, because we have the life of Christ reflected in our very being. And this is, I think, meant to be literal, not metaphoric. There is an actual energy. We can call it spirit. We can call it intelligence. We can call it power. You can call it inspiration. You can call it what you want, but there's this reality that enters into us to inspire us and energize us and to give us life itself so that the life we lived is now a new life. We're born again because the life we have, we didn't have before. We've opened to a new life and we're born again as new persons. Whereas before we were dead and and we had chosen death, now we've begun life and we choose life. And it's not just our life that we choose. It's not just a mortal life. We choose a co-divine life, a life in which Christ is in us. I call this Christification. So that Christ is is literally in us as the energy of our lives, and then we have his mind to be in us, because then we begin to be inspired to know and see as Christ would know and see. Then we're truly Christians. Before that happens, before we open our hearts and this life takes up a boat in us, we're not Christians, because Christ's life is not in us. And so there's this profound recognition in the Book of Mormon of this type of life that is created in us when we open our hearts to receive him. And so the atonement becomes literal. Our lives are unified with Christ's life. It literally gives us a new life. It saves us from death because the life vivifies us, to vivify us to give life. We are quickened. At English law, quickening is the, the first breath of the child. It's the first moment of real human life that the child lives outside of the mother. That's called quickening. And the Doctrine and covenant speaks about being quickened in Christ's life repeatedly. And the notion is, is that a new life has taken up a boat in us. And so the atonement is the literal joining of two lives, Christ in us and us in Christ. And there is no better word to explain it than to be at one with Christ, to be atoned but also it heals us. It makes our lives that we've had healed in him so that we're now whole and can give because we have not only our love to give, to, but to also share his love, and we're called to do that. So atonement becomes this amazing process of Christification where we then begin the process of growth in the light of Christ until the perfect day when his light is fully reflected in us and we become as he is fully in all things, and he has fully shared everything that he has and is with us. This too is taught in the Book of Mormon in numerous different ways. And so we have this very profound notion of what Christ's atonement does if we're willing to look and be inspired by his love and open to him.
0: Okay, let me read a couple things, and then I want to come back to that a little bit. All right, so... You mention we choose to harden our hearts, but we require the action of God to soften them, and you clarify that's not to say that God softens our hearts unilaterally. It's a joint movement that results from our glancing toward or seeing Christ's sacrifice and being moved and softened by it to receive the spirit that brings about a change of heart. And so... You bring it around and say the purpose of the atonement is to open a way for us to choose to give up the hardened exterior facade of the ego that we seek to protect and instead heal the broken relationship. A lot of times in Sunday school or something we hear of the atonement as this gift and so I think that Moses looking towards the brazen serpent he raised up is a very good metaphor because It shows that Christ has offered a gift, and we hear lots of metaphors about gifts with the atonement. So here's this gift. He's given it to you. And you already received the gift. It it was there. Let let's say, for example, your dad gives you a bike. So the gift is given, but to realize the potential of that gift, you still have to do something. Let's say you don't know how to ride a bike yet, you have to learn how to ride the bike and if you can learn how to ride that bike, this bike can be the means to tons of happiness. You can go have great adventures. You can now travel with ease to your friend's house. And you have freedom throughout the neighborhood, which you never had before. But if that bike sits in your shed and no one ever uses it, then you've wasted it. And though the gift was given freely, if you waste it, then that was your choice. And so, again, this comes back around to like, the grace and works difference, whereas the gift is already given, but learning how to use it and all that is up to you. Does that make any sense?
1: Sure, it makes good sense. I I want to draw a hedge around a misunderstanding that arises from the bike analogy because Stephen Robinson used it in a different way to say, well, you know, you want a bike, you've only got 30 cents, so you give everything you've got, and then your father makes up the rest to buy the bike. So you're saved, and you have grace after all you can do. I'm certain that he came to regret that analogy. It gives a sense that there's a lot. We have to do everything we can possibly do before we receive the blessings of atonement, which is nonsense because nobody's ever done everything they could possibly do. And so it can't possibly be after everything we can do that we then receive grace or the atonement because then nobody would ever receive the atonement. Nobody's ever done that before. And so the way you use the bike analogy is a proper way. When he gives us this gift, we then take and work with it to develop the natural gifts that we have as an expression of his love for others, because the gifts that we have are not for us, they're for others. But also, when we receive the atonement, what we do with it, how how we develop it in our lives is up to us. And it, it also goes along, as you say, with the, the metaphor of the brazen serpent, because when we look, we're inspired by his love. But this isn't merely a moral influence theory. It's, it's not merely that, oh, well, you know, Christ's life inspires us so much that we're better. It is an actual real movement of the energy of Christ entering into us to make us over again into his image and to give us life itself. And so it's a literal atonement, not merely a metaphor. You know, it's not merely because, you know, Gandhi is inspiring. I've known lots of inspiring people, but I don't believe that they pulled off an atonement. And so I, I want to distinguish what's happening in this concept of atonement, where we first open to God's love and then he enters into our life from, there are a lot of really inspiring people and and they they inspire me to be better. That's a different way. Of it. It's not the same thing.
0: And yeah, well, and we'll get into that in another chapter, but I guess just for the listeners. So moral exemplar theory in a nutshell is basically saying like, well, what Christ did was come down and he was just such a good person that he inspired everyone else to be good. And that way, you know, a lot of, you know, they are still Christian, but it's kind of more of like Christ was basically just a really nice guy and that was a human. Like you said, Gandhi could be that. And so we're saying, yes, that's true, but it doesn't stop there. It actually is the act of something that not any human could do. It's more than just inspiration. He did that, yes, but he did more. Yeah, you've got it. (laughs) Let's move on to infinite atonement. So there's this concept in the scriptures and in the Book of Mormon specifically, where it mentions an infinite atonement. To start us off, as usual, I'll just give a quote from your book. It says, The atonement is infinite, in the sense that Christ's atonement is endless or unlimited, both in duration through time and in magnitude of pain for all sins. Alma 34 states that the atonement must be infinite, because one person cannot justly be punished for another's sins. I'll just read that, I guess it says, Now, if a man murdereth, behold... Will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, nay, but the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore there is nothing which is short of an infinite atonement which will suffice to the sins of the world. I think
1: what it's saying there is that no finite punishment, either of oneself or of another, would really ever be sufficient to work an atonement, nor would it be sufficient to work justice. Of course, he's also playing on the notion that one person cannot be punished for what another did. It's unjust. And therefore, the and we'll get into this as you say later, the penal substitution theory is essentially being rejected as well.
0: When we state what the penal substitution theory is later, you'll realize that, oh my goodness, uh, that's actually kind of what we've been taught to believe, but in the very prized text of Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, it outright rejects that. Anyway, so... Let's talk about more of this infinite part. So, I've read a few things, and this infinite atonement is often interpreted in many ways. So, when it uses the term infinite, in your view, what is it referring to?
1: It's referring to several dimensions of infinity. First of all, God will never give up on us, and the atonement isn't something that happened one time in the Garden of Gethsemane, continuing through the cross. God's very mode of being is to be in atonement with us, that is to be in fullness of relationship with us. And so it endures throughout time, but the Mormon scriptures are also very, very clear that everything that we have experienced in terms of pain for our sins, Christ experiences. And so it even makes the point that no person could suffer this kind of, of pain. Only an infinite God could suffer this kind of pain, because it's more pain than a human could endure. We talked about this before in the tradition. God is impassible. He can't feel anything. (laughs) It kind of turns this notion of docetism and impassibilism on its head and says not only is God, not only does he feel pain, he feels the most pain. Not only is he moved, he's not the unmoved mover. He's the most moved mover. He is that being which experiences the fullness not only of his experience, but participates fully in all of our experience as well. And not only does he participate in our experience from a third hand perspective, he knows what our pain is because he himself has experienced what it is to be in a body and feel physical pain. He knows what it is to be sleepy. He knows what it is to suffer everything that we suffer because of his humanity that he took upon himself. And so it is in terms of the capacity for infinity of human experience and participation in human experience and his capacity for fullness of relationship and his capacity throughout time that will never end to participate with us. So that's how I interpret the infinity as it is explained, I believe, more fully in the Book of Mormon.
0: Okay, and so you say the, the atonement has to be infinite in order to overcome our alienation and bring us back into God's presence because our alienation from him would be of endless duration without it. So can you clarify why that would be in your view
1: yeah because our capacity to sin doesn't end (laughs) and so christ continues to he's in relationship with us and and you know there's another way of putting this and that is it's painful to be in relationship with us we're the kind of people that if if we accept a person into our lives and we're vulnerable to that person we're going to experience pain because of our vulnerability in relationship to that person it's just given In the way that human relationships are we're particularly painful to be in relationship with and so what it means is that when god has opened himself fully to take our lives into his but when we're in pain he participates in that pain and when we let go of our pain he takes our pain that we've experienced and redeems it that's what the book of mormon i believe is saying so that the pain that we've experienced isn't wasted it's in in a sense redirected to our ability to grasp and have compassion for others. And so his bowels of compassion are moved. This is a phrase that's used six times in the Book of Mormon. And what it means is, is that God himself has a capacity that he previously didn't have to more fully participate in our experience and have compassion for us. It's the same for us. Because of you know what we go through in this life, our ability to have compassion and love for others has increased as well. So bottom line is it's, it's all about our capacity to fully participate in union with others and, and to be open and be vulnerable to them in the relationship. Vulnerability means an openness to be hurt by that person. And we do it all the time. Even if we've accepted Christ into our lives at one moment, in the next moment we may be in opposition to him, sometimes not without even knowing it. Sometimes we're just stubborn and obstinate. and other times we're just downright evil. And that's true of all of us. There's the sense in which we go from being angels to being devils. We're all Jekyll and Hyde, I guess is another way of putting it. Sometimes we're Dr. Jekyll, the good guy, and sometimes we're Mr. Hyde, the guy nobody wants to be around. Every single one of us. And Christ will endure with us forever in that relationship, even though it's painful to be in a relationship with us, and that's what
0: I mean. Okay. And then, let's see, just in the end here, so you connect that here, so you say that because... Now that we have this ability to not remain in our sins and to turn back to God and repent, we can start on that path. And when our days here of probation, whether or not that's limited to just this life, who knows. But anyway, when, when we eventually do return to God's presence, tying it back into the justice, so at that time, God will honor whatever choices we have made. And if we choose to return to God's embrace and remain there, that choice is honored. But if we choose to remain alienated and separated, then that choice is also honored. And you just kind of point out, for the unrepentant sinner to be in the presence of God, the judgment that will take place is not necessarily God shaming us. It's just feeling what we have put out returning to us. So it's more of a self-judgment, just being in the presence of this pure love and holiness If we're an unrepentant sinner, then we will feel unworthy ourselves. We'll understand that we can't be in this relationship. We're not ready for it yet.
1: The phrase in the Book of Mormon is we'd rather have rocks fall upon us to hide us from God than be in His presence.
0: Exactly. So I'm just saying that is obviously Christ's goal to have everyone that has that feeling eventually not come to that. But just how is that related to the infinite atonement? Like, what does that have to do? Why is that in this section at all? I was just a little confused on that.
1: It's related to the infinite atonement because we we can't truly be united with Christ at one. We can't be one with God in the way that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are united with one until we have a fullness of capacity for love and we have rejected every form of alienation separation or every form of sin because sin is in essence the damage to relationships and doing injury to our relationships and if we continue to do injury to our relationships that is we continue to sin we can't be in this kind of loving relationship and reflect the love that they have for one another in our lives so only when we fully reflect this love infinitely throughout our lives, at all times, in every aspect of our life, infinitely in this sense, and that's why the infinity means as I use it, only then will we reflect the infinite love of God that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost have for one another, so that we are fully fit, and when I say fully fit, I mean God's not worrying about our fitness. He loves us just the way we are. He's waiting for us to have a way of being that won't continue to injure the relationship that we have so that we we can learn to rid ourselves of all of the behaviors that push people away, that shun them, that reflect anything less than
0: love. All right. So I I like that just because, I don't know, a lot of people view it as that you're going to do all these things, you're going to follow these commandments, you can just keep the rules and then you'll be safe. But more what you're saying here is unless you are truly transformed, like you, you can't fake this, you have to be in... To be with God, you have to be a godly person. So there's no going through the motions here. Unless you are truly changed and have developed your character in such a way to be with God, you know, you, you'll get there and realize that you're not quite ready for that.
1: There's only one commandment. The commandment is to love each other as he loves us. And that's what we're working on, is to be able to have this kind of love. But this doesn't happen in a moment. We're learning to love each other. And when we learn to love more perfectly, then we reflect more fully the divine life. There may come a day for some of us where we've learned to fully reflect that divinity in our love so that we can love as the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost love each other. They've invited us into this relationship. That's the most astounding thing of all reality, in my view. They've invited us to share their relationship. We can't share that relationship until we be fully loved, because that is the nature of the relationship, is this kind of love. And so that's what we're working on here, and it requires us, you know, as as you've said, until we read everything that gets in the way of expressing that kind of love and and we learn how to be in relationship with each other in this way, it may take practice. Especially now that we have a body, we have a new way of being in in relation to reality. We, We have to learn how to be in this body and be able to express that kind of love as well. And so we're learning along the way. I don't mean that we don't have all knowledge in one sense. We'll have all factual knowledge. We're not learning that. We're learning to love one another. We're learning to be in relationship in fullness.
0: Okay, that's good. So I've talked with some people in the conversation. We're like, well, the celestial kingdom might not necessarily be something that you earn per se. It's something that you learn, I guess. So basically, being a celestial type person is the celestial kingdom being able to have celestial-type relationships means being in the celestial kingdom. It's not necessarily this place that you knock on the gates and they're like, oh, you're not quite there yet. It's something that is a way of being, perhaps.
1: Yeah, and we won't even need to ask because our level of light will immediately reflect where we are. And we'll know whether we're fit for this kind of relationship by our ability to give and receive love. But nobody's going to reject us. I mean, loving people don't say, sorry, you can't be here. We don't. You know, we won't allow you to be here with us. We will simply say, I've got some more work to do before I can fully reflect that kind of love and not act in ways that from time to time alienate you from me and me from you and that get in the way of, of our having this kind of relationship. It really is just being with the people in our lives, the people who are around us and learning from us, and recognizing that everybody that we encounter has something to teach us about love, virtually everyone, and I'll add this, I've said it many times before, but those who bless our lives the most are not those who are easy to love, It's those who are difficult to love because we don't learn from those who are easy to love. That's easy. <laughs> it's only when it's hard to love somebody that we really go beyond our comfort zone and learn something that is otherwise would have been impossible for us to learn, so experientially we expand ourselves because we've learned to love a person that wasn't easy to learn to love.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about some of the stuff that we're going to go into next time, so it might be short next time, but yeah, we'll go more into prevenient grace and the idea of grace as a state of being or a process, and then more about the atonement and actually what occurs in the atonement next time. So uh, I think with that we can end here. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at ExploringMormonThought.com. Follow us on Facebook.com forward slash ExploringMormonThought.